We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 147, Joseph Callinger, the Shoemaker Serial Killer. We talked about this guy. Why did we talk about this guy? He's Pennsylvania, right? Yes. So he died at Crescent. Okay. Yeah. I knew I knew there was a reason. <laughs> yes. So I've been to his jail cell where he died. Did you meet him? I did not feel the presence of this guy, thankfully, because he's quite the douche. I mean, the shoemaker serial killer. Not a good guy. Sounds like a douche. <laughs> yeah, not a good guy. And and to be honest with you, uh, there's not a whole lot of information out there on him. I went to a couple different websites, tried to piece some things together, but there's not a whole lot out there. So I, I did the best I could with what I had. I will keep that in mind. Yes. <laughs> um, Business-wise, we don't really have anything business-related. Um, I did want to mention that I... I can't remember if we mentioned this before in one of the other episodes, uh, but I, whenever I was in Pennsylvania for Memorial Day, I did a couple episodes with my cousins who have um, a podcast called Our Top Five. And we've, Rachel and I have done an episode with them before where they, you know, you you rate your top five of of a certain topic, whether it be French fries or whatever. It's It's really a fun thing it is fun um so we uh they just dropped their episode of uh top five people alive or dead that you would want to have a beer with and uh, none of my people made the list <laughs> <laughs> who was on the list i can't remember everybody <laughs> no you you need to tune in and listen um to it, it it's fun it, they it's very authentic um, and they don't edit or anything like that. It's just, they gather around. It's nice because they can all come together in one spot and like actually record with each other in one space, which I think yeah. adds to it. Um, but yeah, it's, if you want to follow them on Instagram, it's our top five podcast and, um, and they've got, I think they just, the episode that they just dropped the, who would you want to have a beer with was episode 42 and you can find them on all the major platforms that are available. Yes, you can. And then one more thing, just a personal thing that really doesn't have anything to do with the podcast. Um, but we like to give book recommendations from time to time. Again, still have every, gotten... episode, <laughs> every episode. Every <laughs> episode. And and whenever I say we, I mean I uh selfishly like yes. to give book recommendations. <laughs> I still have not gotten any friend requests on Goodreads, which is very I'm starting to get kind of a complex about it, to be honest. Um somebody go friend her, please. It's Ali Fantastical. And if you have trouble spelling it, just message me. I mean, I'm very easy to find. <laughs> But I started, uh, I'm not really big into horror books. I like more thriller type books. Um, but this one is technically in the horror section and it's called Hide by Kirsten White. And I'm going to, I have, I'm about like 78% done. It's a smaller book. It's like 300 and some pages um, on the lower end. And Basically, the best way I can describe it is it's like the Hunger Games, but a more aggressive adult version. Um, 
And it is a it is in a old amusement park is the setting, which anything with an amusement hmm. park, count me in. Uh, I want to borrow that when you're done. You can definitely do that. So I, I've really enjoyed it so far. Um, it's got like, like a 3.33 on Goodreads, which isn't like great, but I'm having I'm having a good time with it so far. Nice. It's a quick, it's one of those just quick, you know. It sounds popcorn. like an easy, yeah. Popcorn those are my read. style right now. I like the popcorn reads. I'm not yeah. trying to do too much thinking. And I am stuck on a book that has too much thinking for me. And also it's just slow, I think. Yeah. So I, I need to hurry up and get done so I can move on to my next. I just finished one of those books. Um, let me see. I can't even remember the name of it it's um it's called i have some questions for you by rebecca mackey and it had really good reviews on goodreads and it's not a bad book it's just it's it's a large book and it's fiction it's about um a girl that has a podcast and used to go to this school and somebody died and she goes back to be a teacher uh, for a podcast class and kind of ropes the kids into doing a podcast about this dead girl that she it used to be her roommate. So the premise was really there. Uh, and I really enjoyed the like setting of everything and in her writing style, but it just kind of fell a little flat for me. So, yeah, but it, and it was long too. And since I wasn't super interested, it just takes so much longer, but I can't, I hate not finishing a book. Yeah, that's my problem. I don't like not finishing them either. And I will like suffer through and read less and less. Mm -hmm. And really, I just need to drop things and move on to the next. Yeah, this book I am reading, I am going to finish though, because I do actually like it. It's just a slow guy. Yeah, and I, I don't normally fall asleep while I'm reading. Like I'm the kind of person that reading will keep me up all night. If I'm into the story, I just won't stop. And I have fallen asleep reading this book three times, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like dropped the thing and just, oh, was, yeah. So yeah. my kid, my Kindle. So it's definitely a slow guy. Yeah. Those are, those are difficult, but it's so hard because even though you're not really into it, you still got to know how it ends. Well, you know what I mean? Good, yeah. This one's a good story. It's called the invisible life of Addie LaRue. It's just like, ugh, I don't yeah. know. It's a good story. I probably would have liked it in a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all but right. Anyways. Well, that's that's all the business I have. Do you have anything else you would like to add? Thank you for coming to Library Corner with Allie and Rachel. <laughs> yes. We're always here for recommendations and we like to receive recommendations. Yes, if you have do. any to give. All, all right. right. Why don't you get us started on Joseph Callinger here? Joseph Callinger, born Joseph Lee Brunner III. He was born on December 11th, 1935 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Joseph Lee Brunner Jr. and his wife, Judith. In December 1937, when he was just two years old, he was placed in foster care after his father abandoned his mother. Not a good Rough. origin story. No. On October 15th, 1939, when he was four, he was adopted by Austrian immigrants Stephen and Anna Callinger. Mm, that's a long time to be in the system. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, not a very long time because some kids are in there much, much, much longer. But well, for him, he probably wishes he stayed in the system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Uh, He was severely abused by his adoptive parents. And by the age of six, his stepfather caused him to develop a hernia. Like from stress, maybe. I think from like hitting him in his belly, I think. Really? Like from a physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Ugh. He was forced to kneel on jagged rocks, was locked inside closets, forced to eat poop, burned with hot irons, whipped with belts, and starved. I don't know how people do this. I cannot six. comprehend that. It it also had in there um, self harm was listed in that and i really didn't know how to add it in there i didn't know what that meant i don't know if he was forced to cut himself or or punch himself whatever but that was also something that they made him do or does it mean he self-harmed i think it was they forced him to self-harm that can't be caused called self-harm that's just poor wording then right you're definitely not choosing to do it right i don't know what another word for it would be but anyways at age eight his adoptive mother bashed him over the head with a hammer for stating he wanted to go to the zoo on a class trip at eight Mm -hmm. when he was nine years old he was sexually assaulted by a group of neighborhood boys and because of the physical and verbal abuse he suffered at home he was too afraid to tell anyone Oh my gosh, my whole heart. I know he's going to end up being a bad guy, but man, this makes me so sad. Yeah, he had definitely a rough go of it, like from jump. I feel like kids are total a-holes too, because I've seen, you know, this may just be like, this feels like movie depictions, but me and my husband were just watching a show where it's a little boy and his mom is very sick and they're trying to take him away from his mom. And it's like back in these days and he is having such a hard time at home. Like his mom is dying and the boys at school just like single him out and beat the shit out of him. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's like kids can smell it. Like they know. Yes. And they don't, I mean, it just shows like what animals we are because you learn later, you nurture those people, you help those people. But I just feel like, ugh, makes yeah. me sick. Like, leave that kid alone. He's got enough going on without right. your bullshit. Right. <laughs> His adoptive parents did not let Callinger have a normal life, obviously, and forced him to work in a shoe shop after school and on weekends in order to train him to take over the family business. Hence his nickname, The Shoemaker. Yes. That is such a sad, very sad story. Yes, it is not a good starting off point for him. Um, Not that it gives him the right to do what he does, um, but but not a healthy environment for anybody. Right. At the age of 10, he tries to bribe some of the other kids at his school to attend a movie with him. So he steals some money from his parents. When he was caught, they burnt his fingertips on the stove to burn the demon thief out of his fingers that steal. So, like, they're just a whole nother level of insane. 
He continued to steal and he endured the pain each time he was caught. That's how badly he wanted to fit in. Like he wanted to buy his friends essentially and was ready to take that on. He rebelled against his teachers and his adoptive parents. His dream was to become a playwright and his parents finally allowed him to uh, play the part of Ebenezer Scrooge in the YMCA's performance of A Christmas Carol in ninth grade. He was only allowed to attend the theater on Saturdays, and it was on one of those Saturdays when he was 15 that he started dating a girl named Hilda Bergman. His parents told him not to see Hilda, but in 1952, when Callinger was 15, he married her, and they ended up having two children together. So he was like, screw that, but it's not great. Were they still in school? Are you allowed to do that? Back in those days, my grandparents married like stupid young too. They ended up having to go to Kentucky because in Ohio they couldn't, but in Kentucky they could marry that young. So they went to Kentucky to get married. And I think my grandpa had dropped out of school. Wow. Yeah. 15 Uh, just seems really young. Yeah. But I mean, married and having a family. But, I mean, think of the life that he came from. Anything would be better than what he was living in. Yeah, but, I was trying to get out of there, but still. And, and it, unfortunately. Like he doesn't have a full-time job. <laughs> well, he does working with his parents, who he hates. <laughs> right. Not a good start. But unfortunately for, for the two of them, it didn't end well. And by 1956, Hilda left him due to domestic violence that she suffered. The divorce affected him really severely and he was actually hospitalized due to severe headaches and lack of appetite which doctors believed was due to the stress of the divorce so i mean i don't know how you can beat the shit out of somebody and then be so sad when they leave i don't know that you have to go to the hospital yeah i feel like he's a little bit of a a, get it together buddy he he can't do that (laughs) he wants to be an actor so maybe he's just really hamming it up i don't know maybe that's ridiculous He seemed to bounce back quickly enough, though, because on April 20th, 1958, Callinger married Elizabeth, who he then had five children with. Callinger was extremely abusive towards all members of his family and often inflicted the same punishment on them that he had suffered from his adoptive parents. That is a lot because what he suffered was insane. And he inflicted that on his family. One five Break of them. The cycle, dude. What mm. are you doing? Yep. Oh, that is terrible. Over the next decade, he would spend time in and out of mental institutions for amnesia, attempted suicide, and arson. In 1972, Callender was arrested and imprisoned when his children went to the police about his abuse. While 1972. Yeah. I don't know why, but it just feels like this story is taking place like further back in time. But I'm like, I was like picturing the abuse that he was enduring and I'm thinking there's no way that's anywhere close to, to our time, you know, and then here we are just in 1972 that feels a lot closer than (laughs) 1930s but he was arrested and imprisoned when his children went to the police 
While he was in jail, he scored an 82 on an IQ test and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and the state psychiatrist recommended he be supervised with his family. The children later recanted their allegations, which, of course, they should not have done because it was true and something made them decide to do that. Mm-hmm. In 1970, Um, hold on. I want to talk about IQ tests because I saw this and started looking things up because I was like, what is the average IQ? Like is 82, like really, really low. And it's not really, really low. So he's not like super. He's below, he's below average, but he's like on the higher end of below average. Like if you look at the way the scores are 85 to 115 is average 80 what 85 to 115 is average and then 71 to 84 is below average and anything lower than 70 is low so he's like right there on average almost three points away essentially yeah yeah so I just wanted to share that information because I didn't know. I didn't know what the average was or what was considered what. So that is from, because you're not going to be able to cite it. No. <laughs> it from very, very well mind. Perfect. Okay. Well, now that we know <laughs> that he's in average range, but he also has those. Slightly below things, average. Yeah. Paranoid schizophrenia and all that good stuff. Well, on top of all that, though, in 1974, he started hearing the voice of God emanating from a disembodied head he referred to as Charlie. So I think he's wait, got a little. Wait, where did he get a disembodied head? He just sees it. He just sees it? Okay. Yeah. I thought it was an actual no. dis- <laughs> disembodied head in his house. And I'm like, wait, where did he get that? Like a Jeffrey Dahmer situation where he's just yeah. got a guy? No. No, this is just his vision that he has. Well, that's not good. No, it's never good when a disembodied head is is talking to you. And what it's saying is even worse. So it's telling him to kill young boys and sever their penises. Like, that is very specific. That is very specific. And why, Charlie? Why? In July 1974, Callinger asked his 13-year-old son, Michael, to help him carry out a horrific plan about severing young boys' penises. And the boy responded with, glad to do it, Dad, probably because he's been beat the shit out of his whole life. And finally, his dad's asking him to do something with him. Jeez. uh... Together, the two murdered Jose Calazo, a Puerto Rican boy, who they lured to an abandoned factory before torturing and severing his genitals. And then they strangled him to death with his 13 year old son. Why? So when you think that he couldn't have gotten any worse than his adoptive parents, there you go. Right there. You did it. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And why would his kid be like, okay, Sounds Sounds great, Dad. Let's do it. Yeah. The next month in August 1974, Callinger and Michael drowned his 14-year-old son, Joseph Jr., and then dumped his body at a demolition site. What? (laughs) 
what is wrong with this kid? I mean, obviously there's something wrong with the dad. He's got schizophrenia and is seeing Charlie, the disembodied head. But what is wrong with this 13 year old boy? He's probably just glad that he's not the one being drowned. It's your brother, dude. I know. That's the only thing. And I can you guys think have of. been through the stuff together, you know, like you mm-hmm. endured the same abuse and it's your brother. Yeah. Oh, man, that is insane. Two weeks prior to the murder, Callinger had taken out a large life insurance policy on his sons. All of them. Watch your back, Michael. Yeah, you're on the chopping block, man. Police could not arrest them due to lack of evidence, but the insurance company suspected foul play and denied to pay out the claim. Thank goodness. When Callinger claimed he thought his son had just run away from home. November 22nd, 1974, Callinger and Michael burglarized a house in Lindenwood, New Jersey, but no one was home. At their second stop, they broke into the home of Joan Cardi, where Callinger tied Joan to a bed and sexually assaulted her. So, so we're just escalating. At least. Yeah, I mean, they didn't kill we're her. We're not escalating at this point. They already have been killing people. She got off easy. That's true. She was That's just true. not a little boy with a penis, so they didn't need to kill her. That's true. Unfortunately, though, their reign of terror doesn't stop there. They keep going. Um, On December 3rd, Callender and Michael broke into a home in Susquehanna Township, Pennsylvania, where they held five women hostage. They robbed them at knife point and managed to get away with $20,000 in cash and jewelry, as well as slashing on the victim's breasts. So, like, take that. I don't... (laughs) I don't understand that for what this. Yeah, that's not cool. The two then traveled to Maryland, where they held Pamela Jasky captive in her home, forcing her to perform oral sex on Callinger. Then on January 6th, they did the same thing with victim Mary Rudolph. They're hitting. I mean, they're they're going pretty fast. They're all over the place, mm-hmm. too. So, you know, that nobody's connecting these to a single person yeah new jersey pennsylvania yeah it's all over new jersey pennsylvania maryland like they're just jet setting on january 8th 1975 they had made their way into leonia new jersey using a pistol and a knife they overpowered and tied up the three residents Four other residents entered the home and they were forced to strip and were bound with cords from lamps and other appliances. So this, as best as I can grasp, this was like a old folks home, like a nursing home, I believe. Yeah. Um, Like assisted living kind of situation. Yes. And the way that that I read that they were getting into these people's homes before where they were portraying themselves as salesmen to gain entry to the home. And then they would, you know, do what they did. So, yeah. So this one was a little different because it was like a a place where several groups of people lived. Yeah. And I'm wondering if they were expecting all these people to show up. Right. Yeah. I don't know. 
21-year-old nurse Maria Fashing had come over to help care for her grandmother and was also taken hostage upon entering. She was the eighth and last person to arrive. When she refused to follow Callinger's orders to bite off a male victim's penis, Callinger stabbed her in the neck and back. Yeah. And she died. That's awful. That is awful. Crazy. I mean, obviously, you're not going to do that. No. But I don't know. And you don't. He hadn't at that point hurt any of the other seven people. So maybe she didn't think he was going to do that. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and really, all of the robbery victims so far, they haven't hurt. Mm -hmm. Except for the the boob slashing situation, which would suck, but But not on the same level. But it appears that all the other ones, as far as we know, complied with what he said, too. He didn't tell anybody else to bite a wiener off. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. When Callinger and Michael were busy torturing other victims, another resident that was still bound managed to get outside and cry for help. Neighbors saw her and called the police. By the time they arrived, the Callengers had fled using the city bus as their getaway vehicle and dumped their weapons and a bloody shirt along the way when they were riding the bus. I feel like that is the like the worst. The city bus? Yeah. Yeah. You'd think what? they'd be caught immediately, but no. Right? Then this is why I don't want to take buses. Yeah. <laughs> the police investigated Callinger after gathering the bloody shirt along with an eyewitness testimony that he and his son had been seen in the area they found out about Callinger's history of domestic violence, about Joseph Jr.'s unsolved death, and a series of arsons targeted around buildings that he owned. So he had some, you know, insurance scheming going on, too. Yeah. Callinger and his son were arrested on kidnapping and rape charges. Callinger was eventually charged with three counts of murder for his son, Joseph Jr., Maria, and a neighborhood, the neighborhood Puerto Rican boy. Callinger pleaded insanity and claimed God had told him to kill. Left out the penis part, apparently. Didn't say anything about Charlie's head. No. Why wouldn't, if you thought God was telling you to do that and then you saw a disembodied head, wouldn't you just call it God? The head? Yeah. Why would you call it Charlie? He must have looked like a Charlie. I guess. I guess. I don't know. I don't know either. He was found sane. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly so. so <laughs> because he's crazy. Right. But I there's mean. There's obviously something wrong with him. But it sounds like he's sane enough to stand. Trial. And be judged by his peers. Um, he was sentenced to life in prison on October 14th, 1976. His son, Michael, was judged to be under his father's control. And he was sentenced to a reformatory. That doesn't feel good to me personally, but like, okay. What do you mean that he was not basically charged with anything? I mean, he's below the age, right? 13 at the time of the first murder. Yeah, and I think so this, I mean, getting... so 14 at the time of this then, yeah. 
Okay. So he's underage. So he does need to go to reformatory. I don't think he should have been like tried as an adult or anything that I can tell from this, but like sending somebody that participated in this much violence just to reformatory, like what, what then? What else are we doing? Are we just going to turn this person out on society when they come age? Yeah, that's exactly what they do. How'd you know? Well, upon his release at 21, he was moved out of state and changed his name. So great. Freaking anybody could be this guy. Yeah, he could be next door right now. We don't know. I don't feel good about that. Do you feel good about that? Because I don't feel good about that. I I would feel better we make about sex, it. We make sex offenders put their names on a list and we don't make some kid that freaking participated in all these murders and stuff put his name on a list. I want to know if this guy is my neighbor. The, pro- the problem is with underage kids is that they have that, you know, that protection to not have their yeah. name listed. Mm-hmm. So I, I would we be, need to get rid of that is what I'm hearing. I would be better. I would feel better about this if I knew what reformatory meant. Did that mean he's getting regular like talking to a psychiatrist, coming up with a plan, meeting with them still to this day because he killed his brother and other people. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, a- are we checking in on this guy? Is there some yeah. sort of like check base that's happening every so many months? Making I sure he's say- going to therapy and stuff. I would say no, which doesn't make me feel good about it because no, I feel terrible about this. Yeah. Do I think that he deserves to go to prison? No, but I think he needs some serious help. Yes. For his whole life. I'm concerned. Mandatory. <laughs> this. Yeah. While in prison, Callender made several suicide attempts, including trying to set himself on fire, which would be a terrible way to die. That would be awful. And also setting yourself on fire in a prison is not cool because you could freaking kill so many other people. Rachel, he is a serial killer. He does not care about anybody else. I'm he doesn't even care. do it. He doesn't even care about his damn self. He's not going to care about anybody else. It's rude. That is because, rude. <laughs> because of his suicidal and violent behavior, he was transferred to a mental hospital in Trenton, New Jersey. He was then transferred to a mental hospital in Philadelphia on May 19th, 1979. Yeah. So this part, this is really interesting. I did not know this. So Flora Retta Schreiber she wrote the book Sybil. She mm-hmm. interviewed Callinger in jail in 1976 for the basis of a book on the case called The Shoemaker, The Anatomy of a Psychotic. A lawsuit was brought by one of Callinger's victims' families to pay out royalties of the book, and a judge ruled in favor of not only Callinger not receiving royalties, but also Flora, the author. So this left her with nearly $100,000 in personal debt due to research of the book, which included phone calls to Callinger in prison, which totaled $1,200 per month for several years. What a kick in the pants. Now, oh, man. And that sucks because I know some people feel a certain way about all of this stuff. But it, I mean, it is people are interested in it. It's research. But then the kind of creepy part is that both Flora and Michael Corda, who was the book's editor, actually became really close with Callinger. 
And they would exchange regular letters, phone calls, and Christmas cards with him, like, for the rest of his life, which is weird. You're writing is, a book. That is super weird. Yeah. Called you're the anatomy a- of a psychotic, and then you're exchanging Christmas cards. So he knows where you live. Like, he's not supposed to get out, but he could. Like, I don't know. I don't like it. That's weird. I don't like that either. Mm-mm. In 1985, Callinger was transferred to SCI Crescent in Pennsylvania and was on suicide watch for the last 11 years of his life until he died of heart failure on March 26, 1996. So he gone. He is gone. And he's a terrible uh, person. Like, he's just, he's not good at suicide because he tried for a long time and couldn't get the job done. I think it'd probably be pretty hard to be good at suicide in prison. Don't yeah. Think? Yeah, well, and we talk about it in the uh, Crescent episode that they had made a special cell for him with, like, plexiglass so the guards could see in it 24-7, no privacy. They could always keep an eye on him, um, which would be really dehumanizing. But, I mean, if anybody deserved it, he definitely did. I do not feel bad for him. Mm-mm. definitely not so yeah i mean that that is the story that that's the gist of joseph callinger and i i didn't i've never heard of him until i went to crescent and saw that he died there and he was you know the serial killer blah 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 so yeah so that now we know now we know i will now be you know. uh spending the rest of my evening trying to figure out what happened to his son michael and make sure he's not my neighbor that's a good idea, and you should let everybody know because uh, we need to know what state he's in. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find anything, but I doubt I'm you try. will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, to cite my sources, I went to precedent.com, wiki.org, and buggedspace.com. We hope you enjoyed episode 147 on Joseph Callinger, the shoemaker serial killer. Have a good week, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.